Well, that's where we started back a little over four weeks ago at Easter. What is it that you're looking for with your life? Have you found what you're looking for? Are you the me you want to be? Are you becoming God's best version of you? Somebody wrote this in this this week. How do I be the me I believe God wants me to be when everyone around me believes that isn't the me I was supposed to be? And how do I know that the me I believe God wants me to be is really the me he wants me to be and not just the me I want to be? Please advise. It will make sense, but you may have to read that over a few times. Thank you. Um, I am going to try to answer that question today by pulling the series together. There's something that you need to know. We've been talking about the me I want to be. We've been talking about becoming God's best version of you. And it's good to know about how we're wired up. And it's good to know the particulars of our lives. It's good to know about the uniqueness that becomes you when it's all put together. But there's still one thing you need to know to make it happen so that you have what you are looking for. And I want you to leave today knowing what that one thing is. The May 10th edition of Time Magazine says the 100 most influential people in the world, and there's so many people that they have to do four different covers to get them all at least on the page. They want you to see this person and that person. They want you to know that there are 100 influential people in the world today, the movers and the shakers. But what's really interesting is the last page of this magazine where Joel Stein writes, I list the 100 least influential people of the year because we all know that's more entertaining. And he says, this is what I'm really doing. And I quote, the list I made, which you can read in full at time.com backslash least influential, does not actually consist of the least influential people in the world. Does not actually consist of the least influential people in the world. Well, then what does it consist of? My list is technically the least influential people who used to or ought to have influence. The least influential people who used to or ought to have influence. And therein lies the story of our lives. We can either have impact we can either be influential or we could be the least influential people in the whole world, but we had a shot at influence. We had a chance to change the world. We had a chance to do something. Two lists. Which list are we on? Numbers chapter 14. It's one of the great chapters in the Old Testament. It's one of the great stories of the Bible. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry 
And the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Do you understand what they're saying? They were slaves in Egypt. They cried out to God, get us out of this. We are in dire straits. Being in Egypt is killing us. We have no life. We have no hope. We have no future. We are devastated. Our lives and our families are devastated. And then God moves and God rescues them and God saves them. It's, it's the great defining story of Exodus. It's that moment where God shows up and changes the game plan, changes history. And now they're, they're let's go back. Let's, let's hold a primary. Let's elect a new leader. Get Moses out of the way. He's taking us where it's too scary and, and it's too risky. We would be better off to go back to being slaves. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And you hear the very heart of God. I have done all these things for these people I love. I have shown up. I have rescued them. And they don't want this. They don't want me and what I could do for them. And he's so sad. He's so, he's so frustrated. And he's angry. It's a righteous anger. And he's, he's sad. And then we go on. But my servant Caleb, because he has a different spirit, and has followed me fully, I will bring into the land into which he went, and his descendants shall possess it. There are three great concepts that emerge as the me I want to be draws to a close. The first concept, John Ortberg couches in an old book. This book is 30, 40 years, years old, Habits of the Heart by Robert Bella. Bella describes three orientations people take to their work. And so John brings those to us in chapter 20. He says, the first one is your work is a job. Your work's a job. You go to work, you do a job, you make some money, you pay some bills. You do some things with the money that you make. That's it. End of story. It's a transaction. It's a transactional way to live. I do this. I get paid. I take care of things. The second concept is your work is a career. This takes it up a notch. I, I like what I do. I like to, to grow through my career. I like it when I achieve 
career goals and objectives. I like it when people like me and the things that I am achieving and doing. And I like doing things together with other people. But Bella writes, and John reminds us, that there's, a, there's another level, there's another higher level to work. Your work is a calling. Your work is a calling. And Ortberg says, if there is a calling, then there is someone making the call. That someone is God. You are not the caller. You are the callee. And one of the most important things you can understand on the way to becoming the me you want to be, God's best version of you, is that God is calling you to something that is beyond your work. God is calling you to something that's beyond your career. And so I ask this question. How is what you do, what you can do, and what you have the power to do through what you do a blessing to others? It's a very important question to answer if you're going to be the me that you really want to be. How is what you do, what you can do, and what you have the power to do through what you do a blessing to others? It's one of the biggest questions you will ever answer. Your answer somehow touches the very beginnings of eternity. Eternity ripples every time your call, your calling creates action. John writes about a friend. I have a friend who used to work at Disneyland. And he said that when he was trained, there was one value emphasized above all others. Just one. What puts the magic in the magic kingdom is servanthood. What puts the magic in the magic kingdom is servanthood. They are told that when you are in the kingdom, when you walk through those gates, you serve. Whatever your job is, you are a servant. You treat every encounter with people as if they were your personal guest. If they need directions, escort them. If they ask a question and you have heard it a hundred times, answer it as if you have never heard it before. You see, here's the truth. Here's the principle. To become you you must know you live as a called you and find ways to serve others. Next, John summarizes the meaning of adversity in chapter 21. He says, rising to a challenge reveals abilities hidden within you and beyond you that would otherwise have remained dormant. And then he draws a principle out of that, and it's a very significant principle that you must understand if you are to be the me you want to be and if you're going to be God's best version of you at some point in your life. God isn't at work producing the circumstances you want. God is at work in bad circumstances, producing the you he wants. And so he's reminding us that it's the way we allow ourselves to grow in adversity. It's the way that we, we see the abilities that are hidden within us that would otherwise have remained dormant that is so significant in terms of being the me's that we really want to be. He says adversity can deepen relationships. That's what that movie Blindside was all about. It was about 
the adversities that showed up in the life of that family, in the life of that young man, and how those adversities just brought them together, knit them together, so that they deepened their relationships far beyond what they would have if they just kind of went on an autopilot, comfort zone kind of life. Uh, if you want to read about deepening relationships in the sports arena, look at this week's edition of Sports Illustrated. There's four Yankee players on the front, and they have been together for 16 years. And the article is just, it's stunning in the way it describes how they first got into baseball and how they cried because of the adversity, and yet what that did to knit their hearts together as men as, and as athletes, and then later as, as teammates. It's just a, a beautiful story of four guys sitting around a table talking about their lives. Adversity can deepen relationships. Adversity can change your priorities about what really matters. You're going 100 miles an hour this way, and then all of a sudden you hit a wall or something happens, and you have to shift gears and figure out, now what do I do? Now how does my life work? Now what's really the end point? What is the, the goal of becoming God's best version of me? This happened this week, just this past week up in Williamsburg. It doesn't just happen when you're, you're going after worldly goals. It can happen when you're going after spiritual goals. The pastor of the Williamsburg Community Chapel, good, good friend of mine. I would consider him one of my best friends in ministry, 58 years old, was operated on for cancer. And, and all of a sudden, everything has shifted. He was going 100 miles an hour leading a church. Things were going great, moving down the road. He and I went to Nicaragua together in January, had a great conversation together one afternoon that lasted a long time, heart to heart, mind to mind, pastor to pastor, friend to friend. And all of a sudden, bam, two weeks ago, he was just going on down the road, doing everything he's supposed to do. Suddenly, adversity is changing his priorities about what really matters. Not that it's going to change a lot about ministry, but it has to change because something has, has changed everything about his life right now. And finally, John reminds us that adversity points to the hope that is beyond ourselves. Without that pressing in, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, without that pressing in, sometimes it's too easy to think that we're kind of moving along the way we want to move along. We're kind of doing the things that, that matter for me. It's good to know about the me I want to be. It's good to know about becoming God's best version of you. But there's a real serious side to this, my friends. And there's something that you really need to understand today before you leave that'll put it all together. Last week, I, I talked to you about becoming God's best version of you. And I said it means jumping into safe confessionals. I can only be loved to the extent I allow myself to be known. Becoming God's best version of you means jumping into the precarious possibilities of human 
connections. I can only find a place to belong through shared relational experiences over time, more time than you ever think is necessary. Becoming God's best version of you means jumping into life's observatory. I can only find real joy by meeting a need I see in someone's life when they can't meet it. Becoming God's best version of you means jumping into some difficult relationships that will fry your brain. I can only become better by allowing some relational heat to bring the dross out of me. I can only, becoming God's best version of you means jumping when God says jump. I can only find out about faith if I keep jumping into the adventures God designed specifically for me. There's something even beyond that that you need to understand that puts it all together. Joshua chapter 14. Earlier in Numbers 14, we saw the the tension that was there. We want to go back to Egypt. We don't like the way this is starting to look. This looks too scary. Yeah, we're free. We're not slaves anymore. But we didn't sign on for this deal. Joshua 14 tells the rest of the story. Now the men of Judah approached Joshua at Gilgal. And Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenizzite, said to him, You know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea, about you and me. I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh Barnea to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. There are always two lists that you can be on. One is the most influential people of all time. And the other is you had a chance, you had a shot at being influential, but for some reason you gave it up. You walked away. But my brothers who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt with fear. I, however, follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. If you ever underlined anything in the Bible in your lifetime, make sure that this is underlined in your Bible. I follow the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on that day, Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the desert. That was the, those years, those decades of wanderings. So here I am today, 85 years old. He's 85 years old. Time to retire. Time to kick back. Time to go buy the condo on the coast somewhere and sit and just watch life pass by until God calls you home. 85 years old, he says. I'm 85 years old. I am still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Doesn't matter that I'm 85. I'm ready to go. I want something to do. 
Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified. But the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Now you have to know something about the Anakites. The Anakites were the most feared people group of that time. They will roll over you. They will bring the heat upon you. You will not go up against them without feeling pain and suffering. They will bring you down. Their whole mindset is, we will, we will rock you, rock you. That's what they think. That's, they, that's where the song was invented back then. Hey, they were going to take you down. And to go up against the Anakites brought fear and trembling into the hearts of anyone who was going to go on that playing field. It was kind of like the Washington Redskins fell every game last year. It was kind of like, we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know how we're going to go down next week. And so up against this formidable foe, Caleb, who is 85 years old, he says, bring it on. Give me something to do with my life that is big. Give me the mountain. Bring on the Anakites. I'm not going to go out just finding out about how I'm spiritually wired up. I'm not going to go out just as being part of the group that came out of Egypt. I'm not going to go out just being part of a family and having friends and sitting around a campfire and telling the stories about Moses from a long time ago. I need to do something. I need something to give my life to that's bigger than me, that challenges me to the very core of everything that God's put in me. Ortberg writes, we sometimes yearn for a problem-free life, but that would be death by boredom. It is in working to solve problems and overcome challenges that we become the person God wants us to be. Every problem is an invitation from the Spirit. And when we say yes, we are in the flow. So don't ask for comfort. Don't ask for ease. Don't ask for manageability. Ask to be given a burden for a challenge bigger than yourself. One that can make a difference in the world. One that will require the best you have to give it and then leave some space for God besides. Ask for a task that will keep you learning and growing and uncomfortable and hungry. There can be no learning without novelty. There can be no novelty without risk. We cannot grow unless there has been a challenge to what is familiar and comfortable. The Spirit leads us into adventure. The Spirit leads us into a dangerous world. Someone wrote in a, a question about what does it mean to try softer in chapter 6 of the me I want to be. And so I went back to see if there were some hints about that in, in the chapter. And I think this, this gives us another piece of the puzzle of what you need to know today before you leave that puts, puts you together. Trying softer means focusing more on God's goodness than our efforts. It means being more relaxed and less self-conscious, less pressured. When I try softer, I am less defensive, more open to feedback. 
I learn better. I stay patient if things don't turn out the way I expected. It means less self-congratulation when I do well and less self-flagellation when I fall down. It means asking God for help. And then somebody caught me in the hall out here and said, I need to ask you a question about that parable of the unworthy servants. Suppose one of you had a, a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. What does that mean? Why did Jesus even say that? He says that because that's who he is, and that's what he did. If you go to Philippians chapter 2, it says that he was God, but he didn't regard being equal with God, which means he didn't regard being God something to hold on to. But he emptied himself, and he took on the form of a servant, and he gave himself up for us. He gave himself. He was obedient to death, it says, even death on a cross, a, a horrible way to die, a shameful way to be executed. But he did that willingly because he was a servant. And he didn't ask for anything there. He just gave himself. And Jesus is reminding us here that the most important thing that you need to know be the me you want to be and to be God's best version of you is to give yourself in humble service to him. Give all of yourself in humble service to him and to each other. Do your job. I say that a lot around here. It's kind of like an inside joke. Do your job. Get done what you're supposed to get done. And do it humbly. And do it knowing it's a privilege to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. John writes, this is the point of Jesus' story. When we truly grow, then obeying God no longer looks like something that requires appreciation. It just looks like what should come naturally, like something that needs to be done. It looks like a mountain. It looks like something that you can't do. Only God can do it when he's working in you and through you. And that's the Christian life, and that's the, the flow of the Holy Spirit. And the only way you'll be the me that you want to be, God's best version of you, is to know what you have to ask for. The Spirit wants to make you a dangerous person. The Spirit wants to make you dangerously non-compliant in a broken world. And when you understand the meaning of dangerously non-compliant in a broken world, you are finally understanding the me you want to be. 
you are finally understanding what it means to become God's best version of you. John Ortberg was here a number of years ago, about seven or eight years ago. He was right out here in the atrium for a luncheon that we had to promote the Leadership Summit. And from that time he was here, I remember two things that he talked about that day. Two things. He drew a diagram on the board. And as he was drawing it, he asked this question. He said, when ever did God ask someone to do something easy? When did God ever ask someone to do something that was easy? Think about that. Noah, Nehemiah, Esther, Mary, Moses, Joshua, Paul, never. Then why would God ask you? Why would God ask us to do something easy? The other thing I remember from that day was that drawing that he did. He drew those circles and then he started to label the circles and just outside of the circles, he basically wrote, these are people out here who really need to know Christ. They really need to know who God is. And they don't come to church and they aren't really that connected to anything. They might not even be asking the right questions about life. They're just kind of they're just kind of out there. Maybe they're on the most influential list of Time magazine. Maybe they're on the most influ- uninfluential list. But they're just kind of out there. And then there was the inner circle and he wrote inside of that little circle, he wrote the core. And then he said this, it's burned into my mind. He said, most churches end up managing the complaints of the core when they should be reaching the people outside of the church that really need to know who God is, that really need to know who Jesus Christ is. And in a very simple, gentle way, he indicted every single Christian on the planet who goes to a church that allows that to happen. When it reduces to, we need to make you happy. When it reduces to, we need to make you feel better. When it reduces to, this is a nice, cozy place to come so that that I go out and I feel a little bit warmer and fuzzier And I demand that, whether silently or whether aggressively. I demand that somehow this has to meet my expectations. You might become the me you want to be, but it's never going to be God's best version of you. It'll never be God's best version of me. It's good to know how you're wired up. I want to know how you're wired up. I want to know how I'm wired up. It's good to know our learning styles. It's good to know how we best worship. Somebody wrote in, is it okay if I don't want to pray when I'm in a big group? Yes, it's okay if you don't want to pray when you're in a big group. That's fine. That's that's who you are, and I want you to be free to be that. It's good to know what are the things that allow us to really jump into the reality of spiritual growth and development. It's good to know all that. But if you don't know this one thing, you miss everything about Christianity. 
and you just end up going through the motions. You end up sort of dancing through the seasons of your life, and you come out on the other end, and, and you didn't really know him after all. You must ask for a mountain. You must say, bring on the Anakites. You must have something that's bigger than you can do. You must say, God, I need something that's too big for me to do. I can't do this. And then you must say these words. We can do this. You in me at work in the world today. We can do this. And when we do that together as a church, we change everything. We change the game. We change the world. But you got to believe that. Too often we just sort of go through the motions, and I want to be the me, I want to be, and we, we miss the mountain side of it. We miss the Anakite side. I'm 85 years old. I don't want to die just having wandered in the wilderness. I don't want to die just having come out of Egypt. I want to give my life for something. Give me this hill. Bring on the Anakites. There's two lists. There's the most influential people in the world. And those are truly the people that say, oh God, I can't do this, but give me something hard, give me something big that I can't do without you at work in me. And there's the least influential list. And those are the people that never become God's best version of who they can be because they never ask for the mountain. The Spirit wants to make you a dangerous person. The Spirit wants to make you dangerously non-compliant in a broken world. Ask God for a mountain. To be you-er, you've got to get to the mountain. Life is not about any particular achievement or experience. The most important task of your life is not what you do, but who you become. To become, to become that you, you've got to ask God for a mountain. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for these four weeks that we could talk and, and allow you to speak to our hearts and minds about what it really means to be who you need us to be as individuals and as a church, to be who we need to be as fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and aunts and uncles and grandparents and people who go to work every day and cousins and friends and Oh, Father, allow us never to get so caught up in being the means that we want to be that we just end up on the least influential list. But allow us, Father, to be driven by a passion that the Spirit wells up within us to choose you and the mountain and doing the work that cannot be done unless you are at work in our lives. Father, I give you this church. I give you these men and women. I give you all this stuff that you might challenge us to do something that we can't do without you. 
Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Very appropriately, uh, we're having communion this morning. If you'd like to come to the Lord's table right after the service, just come to the front of the auditorium and sit in one of these two sections. Associate Pastor Adam Bradshaw will serve you communion. Uh, there's so many opportunities for us. There's so much that God has called us to do. Uh, the deepest desire of my heart, what would keep me up late at night just thinking and praying, is that we would just be the church and take the mountains that he's called us to. Thanks for being with me through this series. And my prayer is that you will become everything God wants you to be. Good day and God bless you.